Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. And can you describe your driving, your context within which you're calling so people can understand that the love is still alive? <laughs> I am in the car. We are heading back from uh, the inauguration of the new governor of Pennsylvania. He is driving me, as he should. Um, and we're heading home. And then he's off to DC. Senator Fetterman. <laughs> Hi, Senator <laughs> Hi, Senator <laughs> <laughs> This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and the Wall Street Journal. This week, we have the honor and pleasure of talking with Giselle Fetterman, and we can't wait to get to know her better. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's going great. Really excited to be here. I'm trying to contain myself. I'm trying to be cool. (laughs) Sit still. (laughs) I'm so excited. And the CEO of Thrilling, Sheila Kim Parker, joins us from South Salem, New York. Hi there. I am so, so excited. We are, uh, we're trying to maintain our collective cool and composure. You're always composed, (laughs) I can imagine you ever losing composure. (laughs) Okay, let's get to it. Giselle Fetterman just had a hell of a year. She has charged through a bruising campaign supporting her husband's bid for the U.S. Senate while deflecting attacks from the right with the kind of disarming self-confidence that she's become something of a pop icon. She's been outspoken about sustainable fashion, thrifting, and vintage, but she's a lot more than that. And she's dedicated her life to the kind of service on behalf of those in need that we're just in awe and so thrilled to have her join us today. Welcome, Giselle. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I have to say that one of the things I think that I, I I may have been slow in the uptake is I absolutely watched every minute of you and the senator's campaign. It was um, it was often hilarious the whole grocery store Fetterman's thing. I used to live in um, in southeastern Pennsylvania, so I'm familiar with those grocery stores. But um, it was also um, you know there were heartrending moments watching what was going on with you and the senator's health. And um, and then very late in the game, I became familiar with the fact that you are really into thrifting and reuse. You've made a commitment, I believe I've read, to where 90% of your clothing will be thrifted or previously worn by somebody else. Um, I know this is a very small part of what you do in your life, um, but I wonder if you could just start by telling us a little bit about how you came to this point and how long you've been doing this. Sure. So I've been doing it forever. You know, I came to this country as a young immigrant. My family was undocumented for almost 15 years. And my mom, who in Brazil had a PhD and ran hospitals here, she was a domestic worker. And she mostly cleaned houses and hotels. And several of those homes had kids who were just a little bit older than me. So I would get their hand-me-downs, which for me was Christmas. I mean, I loved it. I mean, I've always loved hand-me-downs. So I have a very special memory of that time. It was I remember all the kids in school had Benetton tracksuits and they were like $80. And I was like, we could never. And then my mom brings home a Benetton tracksuit and it was red and it was fabulous. So I have, you know, really happy memories from that time. I never looked at it as a negative. It was a very positive. But, you know, learning about 
you know, it's mostly women who work in these factories who really suffer and, you know, how awful fast fashion is for not only the people, but for the environment. It was something I've always just stuck with, you know, and I had like my childhood part that was a great connection for me. Um, So for me, I always choose secondhand first. I think it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more interesting and it's a win-win for for everything. I also love knowing that someone else wore what I'm wearing. Like I wonder if they had these great memories in this piece or I'll make new memories in it. So I, I always loved used clothes. Where do you shop? All over. Um, from the Goodwill to like the the hidden church markets to Thread Up or the Real Real. Um, I love the exchange places. I love it all. I love the challenge of thinking I won't find anything in this place, but I will find something amazing in there. Well, I hear Washington, D.C. has some really great thrift shops. <laughs> I notice. I'm just curious about the reaction that you get when you, well, for instance, on your first day in the Senate and when uh, you posted a photograph of yourself in a blue um, a blue dress that I think you said you paid $12 for. I'm pretty sure I saw that on Vogue.com. I think it really it got picked up. So what's the rea- reaction you get? Do you think that people are starting to follow you as kind of an influencer? I think... I mean, one, I think people are mostly like really curious, like, oh, you can find nice things, you know, like, oh, I like that dress. You found that in that place. So I think it questions the perspective of what they thought you'd find in these spaces. But what was funnier was it was like day three of orientation and someone in the hallway comes and says, I saw the piece about your thrifted dress. Is your outfit today thrifted? And I was like, it was actually from a swap meet, the dress that I was wearing on like day three. I went to like some random college swap meet that I was invited to. And uh, I was like, that's too much. I think the world's not ready for swap meet clothing. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Have you converted your your kids and your husband into the thrifting lifestyle or not yet? So my daughter and, well, only like Goodwill, the bins, like that's her favorite place in the world are the bins. She just loves going to the bins. And my youngest will wear anything I tell him to. My oldest is 14 (laughs) and... You know, he's more specific, particular on what he chooses. Um, but my daughter will only wear Goodwill bins. Like, that's her go-to. <laughs> 14, is a, that's, a, that's when the peer pressure really kicks in. Yeah, and he's really cool and, like, a, you know, a free thinker. I don't think he'd be influenced by that. I think he just likes a specific look. So, like, I found a couple things I brought home that he was like, okay, I'd wear that. But mostly he wants to find exactly what he's looking for, whereas I'm much more adventurous. Um, on what I find. I love the stories about you wearing thrifted to your prom and to your wedding, because now thrifting has become so mainstream. But, you know, I feel like, you know, even 10 years ago, it it wasn't as popular a notion. And so um, the fact that you embraced it then um, is so great. And I also love, you know, whenever you talk about thrifting, it's not just about um, the climate impact, which is massive, and the waste impact, which is massive, but you always bring up the people involved, um, no surprise, given your orientation around human rights. It's amazing that you've, you've been able to kind of be such an evangelist and a champion um, for secondhand. Thank you. I mean, I love women. All my heroes are women. And, and to think that I can pick something to wear that has directly hurt women, I just can't do it. You know, I just can't do it. 
And it's fun, right? Because you, you have that great quote of, we have to have bread and roses both. And it's, and you know, I love that also that you advocate for the, for the fun and joy of things. Like not everything has to be serious. It can be something that we just do to make ourselves feel a little bit better, to find joy in this world. Fashion can also just be fun. It's so much fun. And I remember, so Pennsylvania has this big uh, political event called PA Society. It takes place every December in New York, where everyone comes, goes from Pennsylvania to New York and they attend these parties and they network. And I wore, it was a dress from an exchange place. Uh, It was this beautiful sea New York dress. And I was in the elevator and a woman said, oh my God, I I have the same dress. And she was from Pittsburgh. I said, did you sell it to Avalon Exchange? Because that's where I bought it. No Uh, no way. uh And she's like, no, I think you stole my closet. But there was like that moment. (laughs) She was like, wait, what? (laughs) Right. There was that moment of like, wait, are you bragging? You know, that And I am. I mean, it's a flex. Uh, (laughs) So I think I've caught enough people off guard at first. Now I think they expect it. Giselle, I want to come back to to thrifting and your evangelism of of resale and, and back up a little bit about, I mean... For us, that that's the the funnest thing to talk to you about. But I want to put in perspective like how much you've accomplished and um, additional sort of causes you're interested in. And and uh, you're a nutritionist by trade, is is that right? So following the footsteps of your mother, that's amazing. And you you launched a nonprofit that has provided over 24 million pounds of food to those in need um, and saving food from landfills. So, so you've tied those two together. Um, and it's, it feels like you've made the position you're in now your own. Um, and you're able to draw attention to these causes that are close to you, like food insecurity and opening free stores, um, in a shipping container that I want to visit so badly. It looks like so much fun. Please come. That was actually in the, it was a landfill shipping container. It had been decommissioned. You're kidding. Uh, It's so, in addition, okay, let me add some other things though. Providing (laughs) access to swimming, marijuana legalization, LGBTQIA rights, and now clothing reuse. You've co-founded Free Store 15104. Is that right? Food for Good, PGH, and 412 Food Rescue. Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? No, I think I think I'm really good at mentoring entrepreneurs because, like, I, I host an, an entrepreneur program for women. I think I'm more nonprofit, but I think I'm really good at supporting entrepreneurs. So if if that is an entrepreneur, feels very entrepreneurial. I think you're an entrepreneur. It does. <laughs> I had the same thought. <laughs> Your activities till now have been very Pennsylvania-focused and even Braddock-focused, the the town where you live. Any thoughts now of going national with some of these? Free Store has gone national. It's been different communities that have reached out. So we have, you know, one in a reservation. Uh, We have, you know, them popped up in different places. Nothing specifically branded, but I worked and got them to, to this place. Uh, Four and Two Food Rescue is national. We're in, in several cities. I really encourage people to dream big, but I've never been that person. I think, and I've analyzed myself in therapy to figure out where this <laughs> comes from. But I, I think is that I lived in limbo. Yeah. <laughs> I lived in limbo for so long being undocumented that 
I didn't know what tomorrow looked like, right? So if people would ask me, like the worst interview question for me was, where do you see yourself in five years? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> so I can encourage young people to dream really big. But for me, it was always a struggle. And what I've learned in therapy is that um, poverty and trauma kills your long-term vision because you're in survival for so long. Right. So I'm very good at present. Like I'm very good at today. Um, I'm not really good at next year um, or like the big planning ahead. I'm not very good at that. And everyone should go to therapy. <laughs> yes. Yes. PSA. What are you planning for the next six months? So I'm, you know, I'm in the fire academy. I'm actually uh, becoming a just firefighter. Saw I, I just saw responded. that. That's wild. I, <laughs> I responded to my first two fires this past Friday. No way. Um, so wow. In, in May, I'll graduate from the academy. Um, so I'll do some of that. Um, and uh, working on, you know, I, I always want to work on things that are highlighting and bringing voices to the historically ignored. And um, that's what I care about. It's, I think my work will always focus on that in some way. Um, but I don't know where it'll take me. I, I'm learning DC now and finding my way there. And I just, I really believe, believe in, in, you know, blooming where you are planted. And I've been planted in different spaces and I think have found a way to bloom. And hopefully I'm able to do that in this new role as well. You've said that you enter every room wondering who is missing and how we can bring them in. I love that. And everything that you do seems exactly in that purpose. What have you found in DC? Who's missing and who are who do you want to bring in or are you bringing or in? Or is it too early? <laughs> or is it too early? Yeah. It's too, it's too early. I'm still learning a lot. But I would say that like my first, you know, orientation training, the biggest shock to me was like, if someone is being nice to you, they could be a foreign information officer. So oh be on God. the alert. Mm. And I was, I'm literally like the friendliest person in the world. And I want to be friends with everyone. I want everyone to like me. And I'm like, I have to look at everyone sideways. This is not, I'm a Pisces. I'm not built for this. <laughs> so, wow. so I'm learning. What I do they tell I, you about how you deal with that? Do they that, give you questions? Yeah, be very aware. Like if someone is at coffee every morning, they probably are waiting for you and they will slowly enter your life and oh my try God. to get information. And it happens oh, every wow. day. It's like a real thing. So, wow. you know, I have a lot to learn. Um, but the spouses have been really wonderful and welcoming. And um, the gays have, you know, welcomed me with open arms. Uh, <laughs> so I'm making friends. Hopefully none of them are foreign information officers. <laughs> I have to say, I absolutely love, you know, you you have at the top of your Twitter profile, this quote, oh, that gentleness, how far more potent it is than force. You've also talked about being radically soft. Um, and I love this idea that nice does not correlate with being weak, um, that you can be tough and powerful and also be nice. Uh, how did that kind of philosophy and, and and point of view evolve for you over your life? Because I'm sure it, it was an evolution. Definitely. I've always been really vulnerable, right? I really believe in like, stay soft. It's, it's my voice will shake. If I'm in a situation, I will probably start crying if someone is mean to me, but that's okay. And it took me a long time to learn that was okay. Like I would be really uncomfortable if people would call me like an activist or an advocate because I didn't feel I looked or sounded like to me, what an activist was. Um, I'm very gentle and very soft. And I've learned with time that that is a strength of mine. It is a vulnerability that allows me to see things differently and respond differently. 
And I remember like crying about something with my grandma, which happened all the time. I was always crying. Like give love because that's what's inside of you. Like that's what's in there. And what you're getting from other people, it's what's inside of them. And it, it was like a very simple piece of wisdom, but it was a really good perspective for me. Um, and then one day I was crying about something else. And my grandma was like, Giselle, look at you. You are so cute. Who cares? Someone is mean to you. And I was like, okay, grandma. So I hear that voice, you know, she's passed a uh, sense, but I always hear her voice. Like, Giselle, you're so cute. Who cares if these people are mean to you? It's so important to have that <laughs> voice in your head. It's, and I have to say, I had a personal experience with you before you arrived at where you are a few years ago, where you were soft and gentle really? with me. Yes. I sent you, I, re, I was running a, a business of excess inventory and return mystery boxes and um, sent you a mystery box and you posted it online and you responded personally to me and you were so kind and I did not expect a response. Thank you. I really, you know, I do all my social media, all my emails. I've never had an assistant. Where do you have, you seem to fit 36 hours in a 24 hour period. I'm I'm very confused. (laughs) And two dogs. ADHD is definitely my superpower. And I thrive under like chaos. Like my inbox at all times has like 3,000 unread, 400 unread texts, and anything else less than that would be too normal. And I probably wouldn't be able to function. (laughs) So the the ADHD is definitely my superpower. Can you talk a little bit about, um, because speaking of unread letters and emails, I've always been curious about this, about your, 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 uh, you've been asked this to death, but um, your, the way you met John and just that story, but also I'm really curious, you know, how, how did he respond? How did he even find your letter? Uh, or um, Tell us more. And was it an actual letter? Everybody describes it as a, like, snail mail? It was a, I only do handwritten letters. And I still put <laughs> hearts over my eyes. And it was definitely a handwritten letter. I still do all my thank yous in handwritten form. I think the art of handwriting a letter is an, an art we're losing, and I don't want to lose it. Um, so I read an article, and I'm going through a tunnel, so I might lose you guys for a minute. Um, I read an article about this young mayor who was working to revitalize this kind of forgotten city. And these are all the things I care about, right? Like a city that had contributed so much to this country. It's the reason skyscrapers exist because of the steel mill in this community. And it gave so much to America and then it was left behind and it just felt so wrong. And just like, how can a person be discarded? How can a place be discarded? And I just, I read that story. I felt a connection. I thought, what a good guy. And I went on about my life. And then a couple weeks later, that name came up to me again, Braddock. And it was talking about that the steel that built the Brooklyn Bridge came from this area. And I'm Brazilian, so I believe signs. And I thought, this is a sign. So I said, I'm going to write a letter and reach out. And again, I I do a lot of letters. I write to people to thank them, to say I enjoyed meeting them. I have like an hour dedicated a day just to write letters, mostly thank you letters. I I buy a lot of stamps. Uh, (laughs) And I I sent off the letter. The letter went to his, um, to like the borough manager who eventually passed it on to him. He called me when he received it. It was actually on his birthday. I remember that because it was, he said, it's my birthday today. And uh, he said, well, why don't you come visit if you're interested in seeing the town? So we planned, I was really busy at the time. He was really busy. So I came to visit like three months later. 
And then, of course, he fell madly in love with me when I arrived. <laughs> of course. Uh, of course. Obviously. Uh, <laughs> but that's how it happened. <laughs> that is wild. So anybody single out there who's listening to this, get rid of your <laughs> Tinder account and start writing letters. <laughs> I hear you, Christina. Noted. <laughs> I actually have a stamps. lot of great papyrus. <laughs> and then a year later, you're married. How did the proposal happen? Was it love at first sight? It wasn't love at first sight. I definitely <laughs> fell in love with Brad at first. I saw this community that, um, you know, 90% of the people left, right? And 10% stayed behind. And I just thought like what strength it took to stay behind and to fight for your community. And I just really fell in love with Braddock. I've only ever lived in really populous cities, big cities. I never knew that abandonment existed. Like I've never seen in a city that was abandoned. So I knew that it was a really good man. Like I was like, this is a good person. And that's how I left that visit. And then we stayed in touch. He, you know, checked in to make sure I had arrived home because I had driven in. And then I invited him to come visit my work. So he came out to New York and New Jersey and and visited my work. And then it took off from there. Um, <laughs> but I believe he was in love at first sight. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, he did go visit you at work when he was a mayor of a town and presumably quite busy. So something motivated that visit. <laughs> and I assume your kids are in school in Braddock. You'll mm-hmm. be going back and forth. How are you going to yeah, work, so work this? I will remain in Braddock. My mom lives very close and is very uh, supportive with the kids. I'll probably be in D.C. once or twice a month. Um, you know, scheming, organizing, thinking what I'm going to do there. Um, and he'll be home on weekends. He'll mostly be gone during the week because they vote pretty much every week. Yeah. So going back to the the thrift topic, um, I, I've sort of watched your journey and and a lot of the things we talk about on on the show and in, in fashion and sustainable sustainable fashion in general is the fact that awareness and consumer awareness along with uh, policy maker education is so important, such a touchstone um, when we think about any sort of systemic change we might want to see. And I'm I'm leading a coalition of organizations fueling a circular economy called American Circular Textiles Group. Um, Our members are actually the real, real thread up, rent the runway and more, Um, Castle, so together we're working to advance domestic circularity policies. Shill is a member of Thrilling. And we're very early on, but uh, a lot of the things we're thinking about is how to lend awareness and visibility to exactly what you're doing, affordability, sustainability, like thrifting being the first choice uh, when you think about buying something, quote unquote, new for your wardrobe. Um, so... You're doing such a public service by just existing and talking about your love for thrifting. It's it's just a tremendous service. Um, when you think about the future of thrifting, and I think I think, and I'm sure you think, you see a world where everyone thinks, let's shop secondhand first, first and foremost. Would you think of any policies in particular that would support that? So I've been thinking, I've been working on policy in regards to food waste, right? Because one day I would always say, I hate politics and and I do, but I realized that all my nonprofits exist because of policy failures, right? So that's when I made the connection. I was like, hey, if we're doing a better job, like I don't need to exist doing this work. So with food waste, I kind of have that pretty mapped out what that can look like. Um, I will think about what this looks like for this work, but if you need a mouthpiece, 
um, yes. or any support, I would be honored to, to help with anything that you're doing with that. Plus, I know someone in the Senate office that I can, you know, make an introduction to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Giselle. <laughs> when it's time to have the conversation. Can you share a little bit on the food waste side? I'm so curious. Sure, absolutely. So France, in France, it's illegal to throw out good food. So if you're a grocery store or a restaurant, if you have good food, it's illegal to discard it. In America, it is not. Um, some states have tighter laws. Massachusetts has a good law around food waste. Um, but what we're looking at is that if you have good food, um, you have to donate it to a nonprofit. So the goal would be for restaurants, uh, warehouses, grocery stores to be matched directly to a nonprofit. So that's their first place to go. Right now, because there's no plan, you know, who's going to bring the food somewhere? In many cases, they just throw it out. And the other issue in Pennsylvania is that garbage is really cheap. It's so cheap that other states bring their garbage here. So there's not a second thought. There's no initiative for them to be like, oh, well, garbage is cheap. Just throw it all out. Um, But there are laws that we can pass that can really cut down on the food waste that we see. Currently, it's 40%. So 40% of food is wasted. One in six, one in seven is food insecure. I was a math major. It doesn't add up. Um, We have to do better. It's shocking. Um, And I, I think, you know, it speaks to what we talked about earlier, which is your determination to make this a better place for a better world for everybody. Um, You have this great quote, if I can't bring you with me, I'm not going. And um, we've talked about all all the incredible work you did um, leading and starting all these nonprofits. I loved what you did um, with the swimming pool um, at the Lieutenant Governor's mansion. Would you mind sharing that story? Sure. So when, you know, my husband becomes Lieutenant Governor, I'm learning this new space. And we learned that the role comes with a mansion, the lieutenant governor's mansion. We're one of the few states that still had a mansion for the governor and the for lieutenant governor. And one, I thought it was obnoxious because like I would never live in a taxpayer funded mansion. So I'm like, we don't want that mansion. We were actually the only second family in the history of Pennsylvania to reject living in the mansion. Wow. And it came with a gardener and a chef and I can't cook. So John probably would have benefited from that. Um, <laughs> but you I can't do everything. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want this mansion, but it comes with a pool, a big, big pool. And I said, I really want the pool. And the vision was that we would open it to the public and teach swim lessons and water safety. And we would provide the, this, these services to children who historically have not had access to swimming. And imagine me, like brand new second lady marching into a room with all these attorneys in government saying, hey, I have this idea. Let's open up this school and make it public. Um, And they were really patient with me and uh, made it happen. And it became the people's pool. And for the last four years, thousands of young people from Pennsylvania have learned how to swim, have felt welcomed in a swimming pool, have felt welcome in a governmental space. Um, have learned to swim. Any idea what's happening to it now? So we made sure that no lieutenant governor could ever live in this mansion again because there's no more mansion. <laughs> um, it's now a, a wow. veterans-owned uh, building, um, which is great. Um, but the pool, we're not sure what the future will be of the pool, but we did have four amazing years and we challenged the idea of it's always been this way. Um, it can't be any different, um, but it can be. 
In particular, Giselle, you've talked about swimming comes with a painful legacy of racial segregation um, and that Black kids are three times more likely to die from drowning because of it. Um, and so, you know, you've been such a powerful advocate um, for equality, particularly through a race lens. As you've experienced, unfortunately, we still have virulent strains of racism in the country. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you are doing, how your family is doing? Hopefully it's the minority of your experiences these days. But we know that there's still some ugly, ugly behaviors out there. Definitely. And, you know, what's what's been sad, but also like I go back to my grandma in my mind. Um, I get more hate mail than my husband does. And for years, it was my eyebrows. Like, do something about those eyebrows. They're too ethnic, you know, for for this state. Most women would kill for your eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, thank you. But but yeah, I mean, I get like t- 10 times. It's no exaggeration of, of the hate that he does um, simply for that. And I've learned not to take it personally. Like, it's been a process of learning to say, no, it's not you. It's this idea it's this fear um but i get to share my story like the first thing i tweeted when he won lieutenant governor was hey pennsylvania your second lady was a formerly undocumented immigrant it felt so good to say it out loud and you know to be able to put a face on this is what it looks like these are real people these are kids who go to school with your kids um so i think i will always be that little kid who's scared of the knock at the door if i'm not expecting guests because I could be deported, I will never lose that part of me. It's something that's very much always there. And I think it gives me um, a different perspective, a different lens into into how I see things. But yeah, I mean, I had that experience at the grocery store and um, these things still happen, but it, I think it showed the world that like, I was second lady of Pennsylvania when that happens. Like it, it doesn't matter where you are, what you've achieved. Some people will always see you as inferior. You know, I wonder if you could share a little bit about how you internally and emotionally deal with that because, you know, you're certainly not alone in receiving death threats and hate mail. Um, and, you know, with social media, it's shocking how often that happens to people and based on who they are, what their professions are, it's all over. And it's a terrifying experience when it happens to somebody. So tell me a little bit about how you process that to go on. And you, you keep such a positive attitude. You, you know, your, your whole being is so positive outwardly. And even as a mom, you know, we, we, I, my, my kid's school still has swastikas drawn on them, you know, every other month. And, um, and you know, parents all across this country constantly have to deal with their kids coming home with yep. incidents around racism. Right. Oh, I'm so sorry. Your kids have to see that. Um, I mean, I cry a lot. I think that is a part of my process is crying. Um, but also, you know, I've learned not to take it personally. Right. And I also try to think of like the human side, not that there's ever an excuse, but I try to think of that one time this was a child, a perfect little child that was born into the world, into a home filled with hate into a home who taught them to feel these things and to believe these things. I do try to think of that. Um, and it allows me to, I think, have really difficult conversations with people, but to also try to see them as, as humans. So I've had conversations when people have said to me, well, you, you know, you do such great things. I don't have an issue with you as an immigrant. It's the other ones. Wow. Right? And like, how do I have this conversation? Like, how can I reach this person who somehow I'm, I pass to them, but everyone else doesn't. I've had folks say to me on the campaign trail, 
um, well, you don't look like an undocumented person. You don't look like one of those, right? So, I mean, like I cry all the way home and I feel dirty and icky and drained, but I have to use that opportunity to try to open a conversation, to try to reach a place in their mind or their heart where they can try to think differently. And that only happens having those really difficult conversations, you know? Um, now it doesn't happen because I think people pretty much know who we are, but for the first many years, everyone thought I was the babysitter. I was always the nanny when I was out with my kids. Oh, for God's sake. Wow. No one believed they were my kids. Whose kids are these? Are you taking more kids into your roster? And I'm like, <laughs> I can't handle these kids. I don't want any more. There's been some really funny moments. I mean, not funny, but I, I have to make it that way. And one of the best ones was... We were hosting an event at our home. It was like this catered book signing. And there were all these guests that came in. And I, my house was full of people. So I got a glass of wine and I went to hide off in the pantry to drink alone. And uh, a woman came up to me and said, I saw what you did. And I'm going to tell Mr. Fetterman. Oh, she thought I was like a staff. My God. <laughs> and, in the, and I'm not snarky or confrontational. But in that moment, it must have been the wine. I was like, please don't tell him. I don't want to get fired. And, oh. <laughs> and I did that because I knew that in the next like 10 minutes, I had to welcome all these people to my oh, home. Oh my God. So 10 minutes later, my husband and I get in front of everyone and say, thank you for coming to our home and being here. And she was obviously mortified, came over, apologized. And, and I think that was a much more important lesson that she learned that day than if I had handled that differently, right? Like I was at a pool with the kids and speaking Portuguese with them. My children are bilingual. And this like young, hip, beautiful mom is like, how cool that you teach their language. And I was like, wow, thank you. Like, I really appreciate that. She's like, when I was looking to hire help, I couldn't oh find anyone God. who spoke another language. They're so lucky to have you. And I, <laughs> and I said, well, thank you. I hope they keep me around. And I said that because <laughs> anyone with tiny kids know that kids are going to say mom a thousand times, mom, mom, mom. And that's what it took. It took four seconds for my kids to yell, mom, mom, mom. And she came over and said, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I don't know why I assumed, but so I think, I think every opportunity is an opportunity for both parties to walk away with grace and dignity. And that lessons can be taught in ways that are really gentle too. And I don't have a different tone. Like I, I couldn't be mean, if I wanted to, it doesn't exist in me. So I've tried to find power in this little bird voice I have and, uh, <laughs> and still be effective somehow. Well, it's, it's clearly effective. I mean, I, your, your husband won all 67 counties in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and they, they know who you are. And that was the first time in history that's ever happened. And, and then then while he was in the hospital, and I'm, I'm so sorry that, that that happened, and I'm so relieved that, that the result was positive. Because you saved his life. <laughs> that you saved his life and that you knew what signs to look for. But only four days before the primary, when he won, you were basically, and you've described it as having to act as a surrogate, and the response was, um, because of the way you handled yourself, really incredible, I think. And what, but what was that like for you? It's not every day you're just asked to just step in for someone and act as their surrogate policymaker. It was um, pretty wild. I mean, it all happened very fast. And um, this is a person 
would never sign up for this. Um, but it was really easy in that moment because I love him and because we believe in the same thing. So um, it was easy to share his message while he was recovering. But, you know, having a stroke um, nationally with the world watching and having little kids that, you know, I had to tell my kids about four minutes before the entire world knew that their father had suffered a stroke. Wow. So um, it was, yeah. it was a lot to manage, but um, you know, we made it through and, you know, we were no different than any other family who goes through a health crisis. It's just, we went through it under the lens of, of the world watching. Well, it led to people talking about you sometimes, sometime running for office. You say, you don't have any interest? Never. Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> she said no. Never. <laughs> Giselle, I don't know if you still have family in Brazil, um, but obviously you're still very close um, to your home country. And we were obviously all shocked and to see the about the insurrection on January 8th, clearly inspired by um, our own, America's own attempted insurrection on January 6th of um, la uh, last year. Was it last year? God, I don't two even years know. Ago. Um, two years ago. Two years ago, fueled by white nationalists in our country. Um, how are you, if you still have friends and family there, how are they doing? Um, how's, yeah, how are you feeling about it all? It was devastating. I mean, my family's all still there. My mom is here, but my father, my uncles, my cousins are all still in Brazil. Um, thankfully, none would have participated in, in such a thing. Um, but it was heartbreaking to watch. I think we're still recovering from January 6th. I think many of us still have PTSD from that day. And to see that happen in my country, um, in both my countries, was just devastating. You know, growing up, there was always a joke. America, Brazil always copies America, right? Brazil's always trying to copy America. And I mean, we did it with the president. We did it with this insurrection. And I think the message should be, we want to copy all the good things, um, not not this stuff. So it was, it was very sad to watch. I lived in, in the capital for a couple of years um, and toured all the buildings and just so much history um, was destroyed. Just devastating. I was glad to see the way they rounded up the insurrectionists right on the spot and put them under, I think, they, in some right. kind of a, a <laughs> we building. Can, we can we learn, learn from, that. Too from that. Exactly. <laughs> do that here. Yeah, we, we do things a little differently when it comes <laughs> like, to that. <laughs> accountability, yeah. <laughs> I'm just so grateful you've spent this time with us today and been so, you know, open to all of our prodding questions. And I, I just want to encourage you, though, though you don't need it, to just keep on doing all the work you're doing and stay yourself and know that there's so many people rooting for you and rooting for your husband and um, and ignore the haters because I can guarantee you there's so many more people, even though the haters are louder, that are sometimes um, in not awe always. of you. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I have. A, I feel like I have three new friends, and I'll be in <laughs> yes, New York at the end of the month. So we should go hang we out. Yes. Well, I'm in LA. We got to come out. To I'll go there to LA. I got actually got to fly to Washington D.C. I have a, a kid <laughs> to visit there. I have one last question for you, though, Giselle, because I keep reading articles that describe you as petite, and I keep seeing photographs of you standing next to people like the vice president of the United States, and you're taller than she is. So, how tall are you, and why do people keep <laughs> saying you're petite? So. I'm five nine and a half, and Whoa, the reason everyone so, thinks, yeah. the oh, reason everyone thinks I'm so petite is what? because my my husband is a tower. My husband is six yeah. nine, 
So he really makes everyone look very short, but everyone who meets me are like, oh my God, you're so tall. I can't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite is your approach to taking pictures with him that you will always favor the outfit over keeping his head in the photo. Of (laughs) course. I don't need his head in anything. The shoes are much more important. (laughs) The first time he was like, babe, you, you know, I I think you messed up. Like my my shirt is, my face is cut off. And I was like, no, baby. (laughs) but look at the shoes (laughs) that's perfect i know my husband and i are the same height and i'm going to try to do that too (laughs) (laughs) that's not gonna work (laughs) maybe sideways listen anyway this has been a great pleasure Giselle. thank you so much for joining us today i hope to meet you thank you me too thank you so much for having me that's all for the show please support us by following us on twitter at hot buttons pod and on instagram at hot buttons.pod or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to apple or spotify and give us a rating we're also streaming on amazon music and you can also find us on youtube now we really appreciate your support if you want to email us with story ideas send a note to hot buttons at postscriptaudio.com Or leave us a voicemail at our new call-in line. It's 508-622-5361. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Sheila Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineer is Sean Marquant. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. Even her freeze frames are nice. Yeah. (laughs) There you are. Sorry. No No more tunnels. No more tunnels today. (laughs) That's okay.